Future Design Podcast is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Please go to my website and subscribe to my monthly newsletter that includes the review of the four episodes of the month, takeaways, and books and reviews that are read to prepare for the show. You can find the website at fdpod.co. That's fdpod.co. If you're listening on Apple Podcast, please leave a rating and a review that more people like you can find the show. Now that I got that out of the way, please enjoy this week's show. Yo, yo, yo. Decentralized finance, DeFi as the crypto community calls it, has exploded in popularity from under a billion dollars to 11 billion dollars in market size this year. How is the industry going to regulate itself if and when it blows up like in 2017? Hi, my name is Takato Shishibayama, the host of the Future Design Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Edmund Lau, the CEO of SelfKey, who's created a digital identity system on blockchain for users to have control over their identity. He tells us it's an essential part of keeping DeFi on its toes without giving in to centralized regulation. All right, welcome Edmund Wall to the Future Design Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great because this is a really timely topic to talk about DeFi. During this COVID time, we've seen a massive surge of DeFi, decentralized finance in the blockchain space. And I've been in the blockchain space for about two, three years now. And it was really difficult through after the ICO, the blockchain industry to kind of recuperate all the damage that has been done in that industry. But also at the same time, it takes a long time for any type of business or industry to build itself out. So, you know, today I really want to discuss with you DeFi. What does it mean? Why do we need it? And how does your business really tie into that? So let's start from there. So let's let's talk about DeFi. So can you, for the listeners, explain what actually DeFi is? Sure. So DeFi stands for decentralized finance, and effectively, it is a catch-all term for apps that are trying to disintermediate the existing financial services industry, specific products within that, like let's just say lending, right? So in the past. Uh, you would go to a bank, you would make deposits. The bank, let's just say you're a depositor, you might get paid less than 1% on that deposit. Meanwhile, the bank is then taking that money, loaning it out to a borrower, and then earning interest um, on that lending rate that they're providing to the borrower. So the bank might lend out the money at 10%, they might pay out the money at 1%, and that 9% spread is captured by the bank. DeFi, because it's decentralized, eliminates the middleman effectively by using a smart contract so that the lender and the borrower can connect directly to each other and have a better um, lending rate and supply rate. Uh, So that's just one example of of decentralized finance of DeFi, uh, but that's sort of the most most popular right now. Just to give you an idea of numbers, uh, the total value locked in DeFi um, in October, November is more than $10 billion. Talking about October, November, um, 2020. Whereas in October 2017, uh, when we we're kind of seeing the, the ICO craze, there was zero dollars locked in DeFi. So in three years, this $10 billion uh, you know, loan book has arisen uh, kind of out of nowhere, which is a really interesting phenomenon. And it's also come about within the macroeconomic backdrop of uh, negative interest rate policy, zero interest rate or low interest rate policy by central banks, which affects everyone who's uh, interacting with the financial uh, industry. So it's really kind of this very interesting, still a bit nascent. I mean, $10 billion to the global financial industry is basically nothing, um, but at least it's kind of like that uh, entry point where it's been a very interesting case study. And we've learned a lot of things. It hasn't been all sunshine and roses. There's been some mistakes and errors made in, in the DeFi space, um, but the industry, I, I would say, is maturing very, very quickly. And uh, yeah, some some clear uh models that are effective are starting to emerge. Yeah, the original idea of Bitcoin was to decentralize finance to begin with. We want to take out the central banks or the commercial banks who are in between because they are the third parties and we have to entrust them with that, our financial data to make financial transactions. This probably goes back into the real reason why DeFi came about, not just about the negative interest rates, but the whole idea that we don't want central institutions to deal with our financial data. 
Yeah, so when Satoshi Nakamoto wrote the white paper, and we don't actually know who Satoshi Nakamoto is, which is another interesting story, um, but he was really aiming to provide a payments rail that was censorship proof, where transactions couldn't be reversed. Um, traditionally on the, on the web, you would use something like PayPal, but you would have potentially the chance as, a, as the sender of money to have a payment reversed, to have someone dispute the transaction, and then you'd have to go through kind of this headache of, of dealing with the centralized authority, in this case, PayPal. Um, yeah, so that was back in, in 2008. And it's amazing how far blockchain, crypto, Bitcoin has come in those 12 years, because now Bitcoin has kind of become this proof of value uh, where it's sort of starting to replace, in some cases, gold as a hedge against dollar inflation, as a hedge against uh, global macroeconomic uncertainty. So there's even some kind of very uh, legitimate hedge funds, um, hedge fund uh, managers. You know, Paul, Paul Tudor Jones has kind of said that Bitcoin might be the fastest horse. And in 2010, 2012, that was sort of unthinkable. So it's come a very long way in a very short time. And I think you're absolutely right when you say DeFi is kind of another use case for uh, this disintermediation, decentralization. It's, it's like if Bitcoin is proof of value or Bitcoin is payments, then DeFi, which runs mostly on the Ethereum blockchain, is sort of starting to disrupt uh, exchanges and liquidity. It's starting to disrupt uh, derivatives. Um, it's starting to disrupt a lot of different areas, but DeFi lending in particular is, is a very, very hot sector at the moment. Regulators generally want to be in this uh, financial area because there's so much risk that are associated with investing and or financial services in general and they're there to generally protect people from losing a lot of money and because we have this DeFi that is unregulated by any central authority there is a risk that there is going to be some kind of fraudulent activity or some mis you know misappropriation of funds by you know these central uh, decentralized uh, platforms that can actually do negative harm to the actual retail investors or consumers. So why why in this world right now? You know because I understand the whole reason why DeFi should exist. You know a lot of people don't get access to financial services like the unbanked people, which we have like two and a half billion people in this world, or people who are just cannot just put money into their bank account because it, it there's negative yield. But it is also quite risky. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is risky. And I actually just on the point of regulation, think that it's really on the industry at this point to self-regulate. Um, I think it's on the industry to handle um, things like identity, things like um, KYC, AML policies and procedures in a way that's proactive and, and can anticipate that regulation is going to come. Because as we've seen with other use cases in cryptocurrency, uh, probably fiat on-ramp off-ramps being, being the most uh, infamous. There's really a lot of KYC AML regulations in particular that have come out in the past few years around that. And I think that, you know, you're, you're right that regulators are out to protect the interests of the common person and they serve many times a very important um, role in the financial ecosystem, right? Regulators are sort of irreplaceable in that respect. Um, however, I, I'd say just as to play devil's advocate, just because something is regulated doesn't necessarily make it safe, right? Lehman Brothers blew up, went to zero in 2008. They were a regulated financial institution, but still went to zero, right? Some might argue that they didn't have enough regulation, but I would say we're almost in a world where right now we have too much regulation in some respects, where you have these banks um, that are protected from going insolvent, even though they are trading insolvent at certain times. Um, a, a rather large German bank, who I won't name at the moment, kind of comes to mind when I think about insolvent financial institutions who are systemically important and thus must become, you know, a quote unquote zombie kind of walking around without a lifeline. Um, but that aside, uh, to your, return to your question of what are some use cases, what are some dApps for uh, DeFi? Um, one of the most interesting dApps that I might bring up just as an example to kind of illustrate to people might be MakerDAO. So MakerDAO uh, was one of the first projects built on Ethereum, which had a very interesting use case in the DeFi space. And what they do is they allow you to, wow, this is going to be fun to explain, but they allow you to lock up Ether in a CDP, a collateralized debt position. And then against that CDP, you can uh, create or mint this new token called DAI. So let's say that 
you have uh, $1,000 worth of ETH, you can lock that up at a fixed rate. You'll be able to mint, let's say, $250 in DAI. So it needs to be over collateralized. And then you now have this $250 of DAI, which is a stable coin equivalent to the US dollar, basically one to one. And then you can use this DAI for things like payment a lot more uh, easily because the, the rate won't fluctuate. Day to day, DAI is going to stay around pegged to $1, whereas ETH can fluctuate 5, 10% or more on any given day. Um, so that's this. Uh, MakerDAO protocol is governed mostly by smart contracts. So it exists, quote unquote, on chain, on the Ethereum blockchain. And it facilitates um, this, this creation of this stable coin against the CDP. And if the, the rate of ETH that's locked up in that CDP drops below a certain liquidation point, that, that uh, ETH vault can be liquidated. And that kind of reinforces the um, the strength of DAI because you know that it's backed by something and you know that it can be liquidated if it goes below that amount. Uh, so I hope I explained that clearly enough. You can you can catch me if, if I, that requires some further explanation. Uh, and, that, and that is also a very simplistic version of what MakerDAO is, but I, I do my best. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I mean, basically, you're just uh, collateralizing some kind of asset to issue some kind of I wouldn't say like a synthetic currency, or in this case, in the, in the uh, crypto world, we call it stable coins, and they're backed by U.S. dollars or some sort. Uh, in this case, I guess you know because ETH is denominated usually by U.S. dollars, you get a U.S. dollar equivalent of DAI, and I understand that. I mean, I think this has been used for a lot of traders as well because they don't want to keep their positions in Bitcoin or some kind of cryptocurrency, they want to turn it into USDT, which is another stable coin or like DAI or, or whatever. But um, I think there's a specific use for DAI in this case, because this is not um, Tether, it's not any of those other um, stable coins. What, what is actually DAI used for? Right. So when we speak about Tether or we speak about something like USDC, um, these are centralized stable coins where you're trusting one company, or in the case of USDC, a consortium of companies who uh, effectively claim to have backed their stablecoin one-to-one with dollars in a bank, right? Somewhere there's a bank account uh, allegedly that holds a dollar to every dollar of Tether that's produced, right? With DAI, it's very different because it's not backed by US dollars one-to-one. It's backed by Ethereum in a vault that could be liquidated and it has to be over collateralized for that reason. Um, DAI can be used for a number of different reasons. Um, one way that you could use it is you could have uh, a form of leverage where you have ETH, you lock it up in a vault, you mint DAI, and then you use that DAI to buy more ETH, which you then lock up in the vault and then mint more DAI. Uh, it's, it's an expensive form of leverage, but that's, that's one way that it can be used. Uh, another way that it could be used um, is, is in yield farming, uh, which is kind of a DeFi term that's come about in the last year or so, um, where you could say, lend someone your die and then re- receive a, a return on the interest in die. So let me give you an example. Let's say that you put your US dollars in a bank account. You're probably in 2020 in November gonna get less than 1%. Um, based on what the, the U.S. Federal Reserve is paying as, as their interest rate policy. Um, but if you loan that on a, uh, on a decentralized platform, let me just look up what the uh, exact rate would be today here. I'm going to check out DeFiScore.io, which I find quite useful. I'll tell you the exact rate for DAI across some different platforms. So if you lend a DAI today on the uh, 20, sorry, on the 19th of November 2020, you can get 4.4% in Aave. So Aave is a decentralized lending platform that connects borrowers and lenders. And if you put your DAI on an annualized basis, you'd get 4.4%. So that's about 5x what you'd get in a centralized financial institution. Um, And there is right now $38 million participating in in Aave. If you go over to Compound and you look at what they're paying on DAI, they're paying 3%. And there's $1.6 billion dollars of DAI that's locked in this one specific smart contract. So this does have some adoption. It definitely has users. It still might be nascent um, 
compared to a large hedge fund, um, but but there's definitely um, some adoption that we're seeing here. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about this yield farming? Because you just explained to us that you can collateralize uh, some DAI or some kind of stablecoin, and you can receive some dividends back. So I'm just wondering where does that dividend or some kind of yield come from? Because that's been mind-boggling for me uh, ever since I understood about all these karmas and dharmas, um, you know, platforms out there. All right. So that is a complex question because it depends very much on whichever system that we're talking about, right? Um, but in general, we can say that um, basically the yield would come from the lender from the borrower minus some sort of platform fee. So that was, I say, the uh, the simplest way to explain it. Um, there is, however, a second layer, which is a lot of these platforms that aggregate different DeFi platforms together will sometimes have their own reward or governance token. So uh, one of the more popular ones at the moment is called Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi, and they have their own native token that they're rewarding to people who pro provide liquidity to other lending platforms through their platform. So you can think of DeFi smart contracts a bit like these building blocks where you could make a dApp that has several different of these building blocks or DeFi smart contracts, and then you have your own DeFi smart contract on top of it conceivably. So you'd be able to pay a lending rate um, from the borrower to the lender plus an additional platform token. So that's how you can get these insane yields where they have you know thousand percent APY. Generally, that's based on um, this fluctuating value of this reward token on top of some kind of building block. Yeah, and who are actually the borrowers of this? I would assume that they're like crypto traders, hedge funds of the sort. Usually in the traditional uh, markets, you know, if you're a hedge fund and you have a prime broker, the prime broker lends out a proportion of your investments onto other hedge funds. I mean, is that the, the way it works? Yeah, generally speaking, I mean, we, we don't actually know for sure, but um, generally speaking, uh, traders would be the most common category for receiving um, a yield. And, and what those traders are doing with it um, is even more opaque, but you can imagine that either they're, you know, receiving more leverage to go long or they're borrowing an asset to go short. Generally speaking, those would be the, the main activities they'd be engaging with. Mm. And then what if there's some kind of systemic you know, incident happening in the crypto space where these markets crash, these hedge funds can't pay back all their margins and, you know, the whole thing might even just go bust. I mean, is there any collateral from, you know, you as a lender uh, to get some of this money back because they might go, you know, lend it, lend it off synthetically somewhere else? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, there is certainly a lot of risks in DeFi and the systemic market risk is one of the main risks. Um, we did see in March that um, the value of ETH dropped in one day so dramatically that a lot of the CDPs were underwater and were liquidated. And there was actually one person, we don't know who they were, who picked up millions of dollars worth of ETH for like a dollar because he was the only one on the ball at the liquidation auction at that time. Um, Lucky him. So yeah, that, that, is a, uh, that is definitely a risk. Um, however, in this particular case, MakerDAO did live to see another day and uh, has kind of continued to make you know, progress and improve and get better. And each time that this happens, um, you, know, you really have a chance to strengthen the overall uh, ecosystem, the individual projects and, and ecosystem as, as a whole. So I think that Probably that's a good thing when that happens in some ways because it kills off the bad and, and leaves the good, as opposed to kind of the current incumbent financial ecosystem, which I'd argue has a lot of uh, dead weight, so to speak, where you have these companies that probably shouldn't be around anymore because they're not making profits, they don't have a profitable business model, and they're being sustained off of kind of these um, subsidies that come from you know many times a central bank don't really allow for a completely free market. So I'm, I'm, I'm very much a person who leans towards the free markets um, as opposed to kind of the invisible hand guiding it. Uh, there's different schools of thought there. Um, but I, I think it's kind of a breath of fresh air that, that DeFi doesn't have kind of that, that centralized body that's going to bail everyone out because um, 
Yeah, well, in one ways it does punish people because uh, they've taken those risks. In another way, I think it encourages people to be smarter and to kind of um, have a system which is more of a free market and get stronger because of that. Hmm. And then you, you also mentioned that you get these dividends off of their native tokens, whether it be Aave or, or Wi-Fi that you just mentioned. And these crypto tokens obviously fluctuate in value. So you, you might be getting four point something percent or whatever it is. You know, once you get you, you get it, it might drop in value. I mean, these are the risks that these lenders also have to take as well. Right. Um, it depends on which platform again. Um, but yeah, in general, you're right, because the, the reward token typically is a volatile token and not a stable coin. Um, there are some exceptions to that as well. Basically, every single iteration uh, that's out there is is kind of, uh, you know, either a copy of an existing contract or something that's unique. For a while, you had these uh, contracts like Uniswap that was forked and copied by a project called SushiSwap. And all of the value in Uniswap switched over to SushiSwap because Sushi had their own native token. So then Uni said, well, we're not going to let you get away with that. And they came out with their own native token called Uni and airdropped it to uh, everyone who was participating or had played around with the Uni contract. Um, so I actually got $2,000 basically for free airdropped because had provided some liquidity on a Uniswap contract one time. And uh, I think that that's kind of emblematic of how you should participate in the space if you wanted to as an active participant. You should be very careful. You should uh, not play with anything that you can't afford to lose. And your mindset, your mindset should be one of learning what's happening, understanding more deeply what's happening, developing the skills to discern and be skeptical because there are scams. Uh, there are people that will take your money. There are contracts that will fail or that have bugs, uh, either malicious or unintentionally. And uh, the most important thing that you should think about if you're, if you're interested in to get involved with the space is to just learn as much as possible because there's really so much to learn and it moves just so, so very quickly. And you can be rewarded um, for that, for kind of playing around and being cautious. You don't have to um, gamble, so to speak, at, at least in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Any type of investment that you're going to make, whether it be in the centralized market or decentralized, there's always associated type of risk. And if you're trying to make more money on a decentralized run, you do have to remind yourself that there's more risk attached to it. There's no free lunch anywhere. So that's a, that's, that should be a lesson for any type of investor that's uh, out there trying to make a buck of you. Yeah, there's always a counterparty risk and uh, identifying those risks is, is sort of not always easy. Right. It's, it's sometimes uh, there's the known risks and then there's the unknown risks. And oftentimes it's the unknown risks that will, that will sort of get you. Well, it's kind of different like from uh, equity investing because there is no real intrinsic value to the underlying. So, you know, you are trading somewhat kind of like a FX kind of world where, you know, there's just value because people believe that there's value in it and there's an exchange happening there. So, you know, I think that's the kind of fundamentals of, of crypto investing. Uh, at the moment. Yeah, you're right. I mean, as opposed to an equity investment where it's backed by a P&L and potentially dividends, um, crypto is, I would agree with you, more analogous to an FX where the value of a dollar is what someone else values it. Um, you know, it, in, uh, this, is, this is kind of another argument that Bitcoin maximists like to make is that, you know, Bitcoin has value because um, People believe in it. Well, the U.S. dollar has value because some people believe in it. And the U.S. dollar used to be backed by gold until uh, Bretton Woods, until Nixon removed it from the gold standard, in which case now uh, the U.S. dollar is not guaranteed really by anything. Um, the counter argument to that is that it's backed by roads in the U.S. military and the U.S. economy, which is you know, at least you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest in the world, depending on which metrics you use. Um, but at the end of the day, it still is. Uh, based on perception. If overnight that perception deteriorates, you can see massive devaluations in FX markets. I mean, we've seen that happen in Zimbabwe, we've seen that happen in Argentina and Venezuela, where overnight there was massive hyperinflation and the value per unit in peso or uh, Zimbabwe dollar just dramatically, dramatically decreases uh, its purchasing power. So yeah, I mean, the, the name of the game in, in investing and hedging against that type of risk is really diversification across different asset buckets. So 
Do you have a well-rounded portfolio with different asset classes and strategically rebalancing those asset classes? Um, anyway, I'm not a financial advisor, uh, but that's that's what I can see in 2020 is that there's definitely going to be some currency risk. You know, if you look at the U.S. dollar over the past uh, several hundred years, really the last 60 years since World War II, the U.S. dollar was the world's reserve currency. I'm not sure that that status is 100 percent certain in the future. When you start thinking about crypto, when you start thinking about central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, and all of that entails, uh, it becomes much less certain that the US dollar will kind of be the king reserve currency looking into the, the far distant future, right? At some point, that dollar heyday will probably end. And um, you'll at that point probably be wanting to hold on to some crypto or some gold or some kind of hedge against that inflation. Um, and I think that that's, that's a prudent move for any investor, no matter what their, their size of their portfolio, right? It could be somebody who, who is a, a quote unquote minnow or someone who's a whale. Uh, you definitely want to be hedged against that type of scenario, right? An inflationary scenario, a deflationary scenario. These are the type of things that like a financial advisor who, who is good at what they do should be kind of protecting your portfolio from. So I think the Bitcoin maximalists obviously will always tell you that there's a doom, doomsday scenario and I really abide to that as well. I mean, that's part of the reason why I got into Bitcoin in the first place. I mean, there was two two reasons. One, financial inclusion. So whether it be, you know, com- people in developing countries trying to save money because they're their actual currency is devaluating or people like in Argentina or Venezuela that has their government's monetary policies failing on them and they need to take money out of their country or whether it be China where they have restrictions on moving money across uh, borders. And then there's another one where I think that people who are really looking at the dollar hegemony as a threat and there's been a lot of attempts by Russia, China, in many different eras since uh, World War II that people wanted to debase uh, the U.S. dollars as the reserve currency because nobody really wants to deal with the whole uh, you know, currency risk that is attached to it. And for, for ongoing reasons, I mean, I think, you know, DeFi can go out just from the speculative side onto more financial inclusions. But I still think that there's a lot of complexity around DeFi for people, regular, even regular people, to understand uh, the mechanism behind it. And I think it'll be very difficult for people who are very low on financial literacy to understand it. Do you think that DeFi can go into this world of financial inclusion? I think it can. I think it's on developers to create a user experience that's simple, right? So if you start having people from emerging markets who have a wallet, can you make it easy for them to participate in DeFi? without a lot of transactions. Um, that's, I think, how you would enable that mainstream inclusion. I don't think we're there yet. It's just still challenging. There's still a lot of kinks to be worked out, if you will. Um, but it is it is possible. I just think it will take some time for that to happen. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, and you talked about self-regulating in this DeFi space. And I think that, I guess, every platform has its own rules. And every platform, or not, not every, but some platforms work across different platforms as well. So I, I kind of see this, you know, tangling of different platforms very confusing when there is a systemic risk in the market and when there's margin calls to be, be called upon and there's going to be a lot of, you know, untangling to do. So that's where I see like the big risk uh, sometimes. Uh, that are, are probably, you know, I could foresee happening. And in terms of what you're doing in this space, your your company called SelfKey, you're looking at KYC, AML. I mean, this is the first part of financial businesses that need to go through in order to onboard uh, clients. Now, I see that as part of uh, self-regulating in this industry because that's definitely somewhere um, that, you know, the industry doesn't want you know, a lot of, um, you know, uh, dark money to come in. You don't want to have all these terrorist financing happening. I mean, that's probably one of the reasons why you started this business and that's part of uh, self-regulating. But can you talk to us a little bit more about how DeFi and then KYC and AML come into place? Yeah, sure. Um, right, so I come at this problem from a financial services background where I was... Uh, founder of a company who's setting up legal entities, setting up bank accounts, 
And we always had this painful issue of KYC, which was collecting documents and then sharing those documents with the bank who then turns around and does the same KYC checks we just did. Um, so in 2015, I started a company KYC chain, which tried to make this problem a little bit easier. So we went through several different accelerators. We worked with the bank um, to really understand their needs and solve the problem. And that became a B2B SaaS application that still exists today. However, we hadn't solved the problem from the user side. We'd, we'd made it more efficient for a financial institution, but we hadn't solved the problem for the user, which was, I still need to store and then send out these documents over and over again and repeat the process from square one. So in 2017, we started SelfKey, which is a digital identity wallet that the user can use to store their data and documents. And then there's a marketplace within the SelfKey wallet where they can explore different financial products and services, and then one click, send their documents, send their data over to that requesting party. And we can also do some very interesting things with cryptography, like create credentials that allow us to minimize the amount of information that's shared. For instance, if you wanted to, um, you know, let's just take another use case that's outside of the financial services industry for a second. Let's say that you wanted to get access um, to a bar and you needed to be over 18. You don't necessarily want to share your address with the bouncer who's checking your ID. You just want to share the fact that you're over 18. So with a verifiable credential, you could share just that attested fact, who has attested it without revealing the underlying document that backs up that data. Um, so there's actually a, a project in Singapore that uses credentials um, for a student, for a student uh, grades in universities, right? So you can share the fact that I got a GPA above this amount without revealing the exact GPA or without revealing the exact classes that you took. I think right now we live in a society where data is the new oil and we're just kind of sharing this data with various parties and there's been um, kind of a very, shall we say, different response to that depending on you know who the party was. Uh, corporations wanna absorb that data, governments wanna to try to police it, and individuals kind of wanna share as little data as possible and get annoyed by the process. Uh, so what we're trying to do at SelfKey is really be in the user's court where we're trying to minimize the amount of data that's shared, satisfy the regulatory norms um, that are needed, uh, you know, both by a national regulator like MAS in Singapore, or kind of a global policy body like FATF and their, their crypto travel rule and, and make those two fit together so that the user's privacy is preserved, the data is as safely transferred as, as possible and minimize the amount that's transferred and that the relying party, the, the bank or the, or the DeFi app or whoever is requesting that information on the, on the back end is certain that that information has been reported, is safely stored and all those, and all those facts. Um, so we're, what we're trying to do is build this uh, intermediary layer of technology which facilitates these identity processes and I can talk about you know more about how we do that but that's kind of very high level um, where we see ourselves fitting in is as an enabler that makes those identity transactions a bit easier mm. well in our podcast we don't really talk too much about how and we talk more about why and I and when we talk about self-identity and I think that's really important, not just because of the KYC and AML factor of it, because because more and more, as you say, our data is out in the open and we don't even know where it's going. And there's no responsible authority really being able to manage our data and where it's going. And we don't really want governments to always, you know, managing this all the time. We want something that's in this in this blockchain world, the crypto world, we use uh, trustless. We don't need to trust any central authority. We want something else that we can trust that uh, can manage our data safely. And and because of these times when you know we were always on you know online, we were always going on uh, different platforms, whether it be crypto exchanges, it could be you know as you say schools. You know we, our credentials are being shared and and stored somewhere else. And you know, I, I remember, you know, many times when I used to onboard onto crypto exchanges, you have to send over lots of documents. You take a f selfie with a passport and a, and a date that's attached to it saying, you know, this is me. I mean, it, it is really cumbersome and I really hated that whole process. And then what you're doing is trying to simplify that process because you could just send the same thing over to everybody else. But what if those, you know, centralized exchanges or you can even be decentralized exchanges, they want to hold your your data i mean do they what do they do do they just take a snapshot of like what your credentials and then they don't keep it or, or like how does that actually work 
Right. So what we're trying to do is, is provide what's necessary in the regulatory world that we live in today, which is that you may need to send the passport in some cases. However, we're trying to build that bridge across the gap to tomorrow, which is what can the technology do and what would be better for the user? So it would be better to just have the credentials. Um, at this point today, some exchanges are going to want that. But if we can provide that service, if, if users can demand that credential be used instead of the, uh, you know, the full document, that's, that's a better world to live in. So the reason why we do it is, is I think that you know, identity, who owns our identity data is one of the most important questions of our time, right? As we move into a world with more AI, more machine learning, um, where, where data has become so, so valuable as an asset for a company. Look at the most um, successful IPOs over the past two decades, right? They're all data companies. Google is primarily a data company. Facebook is primarily a data company, right? Google or Facebook with no data is like basically nothing. Right. I mean, I think even they would admit that. So as this data is so important, um, especially personal identifiable information, PII, as it's called, uh, that particular data has exceptional value. And I don't see a lot of services building a solution for the user. And that's what we're trying to do at SelfKey is build a solution that is self-sovereign, that's owned and controlled by the user. And that word self-sovereign means um, basically 10 different principles. Um, that, that that identity should uphold and, and should be defined by. Um, trying to make real services available to the users. So nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want a self-sovereign identity today, right? Nobody's ever said that ever because it's not, it's not a driving force for consumer. But you might say, I want a loan or I'd like to make a loan. And I'd like that identity transaction when I make that loan to be as safe as possible. I'd like to identify which different providers provide that service and which has the best rates for me. So that's what we're trying to do at SelfKey is make that information freely accessible and make the identity transaction as safe and as simple as possible for the user. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that uh, more and more, our data is not just about our face, our residential address or birthdays. I mean, you know, it could be anywhere that we have accessed online, offline, and, and actually recreates who you are, right? And I, we had multiple episodes uh, with smart cities and IOT guys before saying that there's our digital twins out there that has no identity of ourselves, but you can actually track where we went to what these people you know digital twins were doing and then be able to trace that back to who you are and that's really scary and then that data can be shared with anybody and and without our actual knowledge and that's that's the scariest part it's not just about credentials but it's about everything that we do these days and that's what's that's the kind of data that is being mined today that's the kind of data that's actually valuable today than just your face and your idea you know your credentials Right, and, and we have a choice. So all, everything that you just said is 100% true. And, and as a society, we have, we have two choices, right? We have a choice of letting that data be centrally managed by central authority, where they have uh, an omnipresent uh, view of everything that happens with your identity. Or you have a second choice, which is a self-sovereign, user-controlled, user-owned uh, identity. And, and those are two very different choices, right? There's a there's a paradigm shift between <laughs> between each of those. And um, yeah, I, I would hope that more people would be educated and would know the self-sovereign choice is, is a better choice for the future of humanity because it, it, it removes um, it removes the opportunity for people to act maliciously, right? And when you have power, typically that power tends to corrupt. Not in all cases. Uh, there are some benevolent leaders, there are some benevolent governments um, who have a lot of power and who treat their citizenry in an appropriate way. But there's also some governments, not, not naming any particular, um, who I feel could do a better job of uh, treating their citizens and how they handle their citizens' data, right? And I think that that will be a very important topic as we move ahead in the coming years because data is only going to become more valuable, right? We're not going to go back in time and data is somehow less valuable, right? It's only gonna become more valuable. Uh, we're gonna be more connected to our devices. We're gonna be more, um, you know, kind of building up this digital twin that you talk about. There's gonna be more data points. Um, so we really are in, at an inflection point now where we need to make a choice between those two, those two options. And I think it's one of the most important choices that we make uh, as a society. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And then I don't know if you ever use this uh, browser called Brave, but you get these 
fat tokens uh, in exchange for releasing your data to these advertising companies. Sometimes I wonder if it, that's really the right incentive because um, yeah, sure, you can monetize your identity or your data, but you know, what if there's another way that we can actually, it's not just about monetization, but like, let us understand us better. You know, we want to know what we're actually doing in this world. We do a lot of things without realizing it. And then we just leave traces of ourselves everywhere online. But if we can get that data back and then be able to understand our habits, our, you know, preferences for certain things, I mean, that will be much better for us to understand ourselves and be much better as a human being as well. I mean, do you find the incentive for a lot of these blockchain companies to say, oh, monetize your data, here's your crypto token, or it could be you know, real currencies as well. I mean, do you think that's a right way that we're going about in these blockchain companies? Yeah, I mean, I'm torn because on one hand, I do think that you know, it's better that the users get something rather than nothing. But the problem in my opinion at this point is that the users don't really get very much. Not much value is actually returned to them. Um, so, so that I think is, is a bit of an issue. And for me, there's, there's two issues that I'd like to highlight just at this moment. Um, one is that it takes so much time to go through a KYC and an identity transaction. In many cases, it's just insane. I mean, there was a study done by Thomson Reuters in 2017 about opening up a corporate account in Asia. And they found that outside of Japan, it took an average of 28 days to get a corporate account set up. Not do any transactions, just to get the account operation. I mean, that's an insane amount of wasted energy by society that we're spending um, because we're, we're using antiquated technology to achieve the process. Uh, so that's, that's kind of one aspect. The second aspect is that after that 28-day process, all that effort that went into verifying the person is completely thrown out. It was a single organization that did a single compliance process, and they're going to repeat that process a year from now, by the way. Why don't we create a credential that the user can then take and move to other places as and when he would choose, right? So when I go to the second financial institution or the different provider who I'm, who I'm looking to sign up for a service, they don't have to start from square one. They can see, all right, this person already went through a KYC process with this other trusted financial institution. They have an account there, and then we're able to do business with them more quickly, right? A lot of times when you're setting up a new financial account, um, banks will ask you for something called a bank reference letter. I don't know if you've ever been asked this, but it's a very annoying process because you have to go to a bank that you have an account with already. So if you don't have that, then you can't get the account set up anyway, which is a bit of a catch-22. Yeah. But if you do have an account set up already, some banks won't issue this letter. And the banks that do issue this letter issue it on a piece of paper. It says, Edmund has had a bank with a, account with us since 2015. And that's all it says. And that letter could easily be forged or faked. There's no blockchain hash, there's no stamp, there's no electronic signature. So the technology that we're using for these identity transactions is just really out of date. We, we have better technology, we have a better way of doing it. And uh, that's what we're trying to push. We're trying to disrupt the way that, um, that identity transactions are done and make it, make it a lot more efficient and make it a lot more user-driven, right? That's, that's where we should be coming from when we're designing solutions as entrepreneurs, as founders. We should be thinking about how can we make this better for the user, both the user as an individual, as well as the financial institution, who's you know required by regulators to collect this information. Mm. And then what about the uh, backside of it? So you collect these data and then you have to go and, you know, to some institution and figure out this person has been blacklisted somewhere, you know, if their credit scores are bad or, you know, they, they've been bankrupt sometimes or, you know, there's a lot of data that you have to go out and look for, right? I mean, is this part really can be automated or is this still a very manual process? A lot of it can be automated. I mean, there's been huge advances in the past few years on machine learning, right? And robotic process automation. We're not quite in the world of AI yet. When people use the word AI, you should probably be a little bit skeptical. But in terms of, you know, rote process uh, and, and robotic process automation, or RPA, there have been huge advancements made. And, and particularly in this space, in the KYC AML space, there's been a lot of investments that have been done. Um, we're coming at it from that angle with KYC chain, and we're also coming at it from the verifiable credentials angle, where we can be certain that on this date, this company did these checks, and here's an attestation of that. Maybe that's good enough for some identity checks. You don't have to ask for the underlying documents and passports that back that up because that's, that's much safer for the user. And again, in many cases, much safer for the institution 
because institutions, no matter how big they are, when they're keeping this data in a centralized repository, that's a risk. They have now a treasure trove of information that hackers will try to get. And, and big companies with huge infrastructure and a lot of staff are not immune to this. You know? Equifax in the United States is one of three uh, federally approved credit bureaus, um, had hundreds of millions of identities hacked from their servers because they had inadequate security infrastructure and they had a centralized repository of all this data. And if they had done their data management, if they had done their identity management in a better way and more decentralized way, A, less of that data would have been stolen and B, um, the information that was stolen wouldn't have been as damaging to the people who had their, their data stored there, not even by choice. You don't even get to choose whether you're an Equifax or not here. If you have a social security number, if you have a credit score, you're in there by default. Um, so I think that you know the way that I would hope identity management could move in the future is, is much more voluntary and uh, much more decentralized where we don't have these uh, singular treasure troves of data for, that are very obvious and uh, huge rewards for hackers. Yeah, I, and I think that the whole community of DeFi is really uh, really in on this, you know, trying to create a decentralized system for credentials. But, you know, when you go to actually uh, centralized institutions, whether it be Equifax or any of the uh, credit agencies out there, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be some kind of pushback. They don't want to have a decentralized system because it really takes out their actual business model. And, you know, we we had a couple of events in Singapore uh, based on my company, and we we got a lot of these health organizations come on board, and we talked about how medical records should be on uh, decentralized platforms, and then also be portable, so that even if we go to a different country and we have certain uh, you know, diseases and it actually starts to manifest, we can go to a doctor and say, here, this is my medical records. You don't have to go to my family doctor uh, back in Singapore. I mean, but there was a lot of pushback from that because they don't want to work together. Um, these health organizations didn't want to work together. You know, the governments were excluded from the whole process. And, you know, it was a really messy conversation around that. And I find that, you know, trying to get these de decentralized ideas to centralized institutions like these big companies is just a really tough conversation to have. So are you more on the side of like, just, just disrupt these guys and create something new, or do you still want to work with these companies? I mean, we're still very much willing to work with them. I mean, bear in mind, we've, I've been at this a long time as you, as of you, we've been at this since 2015. So we've had a lot of conversations with a lot of financial institutions. I would say that some are much more willing than others. Some are much more forward thinking than others. In some places, some countries are much more, um, you can see that something like this could be adopted in the future. Um, without speaking about any particular place, I, I think that that's, that's a really important consideration is like, where, where are you doing this? Um, when it comes to our particular approach right now, we're very focused on DeFi and the decentralized space because it's just so fascinating and fast moving. And there's a really apparent need in the marketplace, in my opinion, for an industry that can self-regulate and can move in the direction of being compliant. Maybe not every platform is compliant overnight. I think that that's an impossible goal, but at least providing a pathway to self-regulate is much better than having regulators come in and try to stamp out the whole party. Right. So we're focused on, um, you know, right now what we did is we had in our R&D team a DeFi platform that's similar to Wi-Fi that we mentioned before that we spun out and made its own project. And we're using self-key credentials to power this new DeFi platform so we can have a pathway to regulatory compliance. And we can also have a platform that is backed by machine learning that helps you identify the best rates across different DeFi platforms. So that's how we're kind of... Um, eating our own dog food, so to speak. We're kind of showing, all right, here's how you could do something like this. Here's how you could have a regulatory compliant platform with credentials. Here's a pathway that that, you know, could kind of um, be accomplished on. And here's kind of the first step towards that. Um, so that, that's what uh, that's what we've done, you know, very, very recently. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely want to check it out myself. Um, I have been pretty late. Um, embarrassing to say in this whole DeFi thing, uh, maybe because of my kind of uh, real background in, in traditional finance, I, I really didn't really get into it that much, but it probably gives me a chance to kind of uh, take a look at this again and ha have a, a real think 
uh, around it. And and for people who want to continue to follow you, understand what you're doing, uh, where where pe- where can people go? Yeah. So if you want to check out the platform that I just mentioned, you can go to keyfi.com, K-E-Y-F-I.com. And there we have an aggregation of different DeFi platforms that you can uh, that you can check out, that you can play around with and learn from. Uh, I would also argue that you're very early in the DeFi space. I think it's we're still in the first inning if this is a baseball game. Um, also, selfkey.org, you can download our non-custodial wallet. It's a uh, free and open source so you can you can check out the source code built from source if you're a technologist and um yeah we we do have our own community in both of those projects that you can uh, become involved with as well cool and if there's any parting message that you want to give to the audience uh please let me know um yeah i think i said it earlier I, i just think that decentralized identity is one of the most important topics of our time and uh, it's on you to kind of take responsibility for your data. There's not going to be somebody else that comes and kind of protects you. you. You really need to educate yourself on these issues and not just with identity, with DeFi, with cryptocurrency. If this is something that you are interested in that does interest you, I would encourage you to play around and be cautious, right? Uh, I heard a quote that I really liked the other day uh, that, I, that I think I'll end with. Uh, let me just pull it up. So it's by, let me just give you a quick backstory. It's by uh, a gentleman who predicted the 2008 uh, subprime mortgage collapse and effectively bet against what everyone at the time, you know, was a consensus trade was long these mortgage-backed securities. He went short mortgage-backed securities and bought insurance and made uh, billions of dollars in the process. It was, it was a very smart guy. There's actually a movie um, that was made about him called uh, The Big Short. Um, so I'm talking about a gentleman named Michael Burry, and I read a quote from him the other day that said, Read skeptical, listen skeptical, see skeptical, think humble. And I think that's a really good advice for uh, anyone in the DeFi or crypto space at the moment. Yeah, for investment as well. I mean, everything you have to look at it from a skeptical eye and not be too positive about things, only when you actually manifest. So I think that's a great quote to uh, leave off with. Uh, thank you very much for your time. And uh, you know, I hope you keep, uh, keep going at it. We'll keep building. Uh, Thank you for having me. Appreciate the time. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. If you had enjoyed or disliked the show, please let me know in the comment section. I can only improve or add value to you through your voices. If there are any topics that you'd like me to pick up, please let me know in the comment section as well. I'd love to start chatting with you. And if you'd like to continue listening to the show, please subscribe. Thank you.